you are listening to the Wine Cellar Podcast, where we simplify the world of wine. Each show, we discuss topics ranging from the grape to the glass. Here are your hosts, Brandon Bourgeois and Tyler Schwed. Wine Cellar Podcast to bring to you guys another edition of the Prince Edward County Series. Now, in this episode of the Prince Edward County Series, we interviewed the one and only Norman Hardy. Norman Hardy is one of the most well-known winemakers in Prince Edward County. In the interview, Norm tells a lot of really cool stories, especially with a few really well-known names from the wine and food industry. Uh, Most notably was Matt Kramer, who was one of the most famous wine critics in the world. This interview is filled with tons of gems, and we really can't wait for you guys to hear it. So without further ado, please enjoy our interview with Norman Hardy. So Norm, thanks for coming on to the podcast. We appreciate you taking the time out of your busy Saturday to come and, uh, come and talk with us. <laughs> oh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to sit down for a little bit as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we had a big start to the day, and uh, nice to have a break here. Absolutely. So uh, I'd just love to know, how, how did you get your start in wine? Well, there's a very interesting expression, it takes a lot of beer to make wine. And uh, when I went to my first year university, I made that cardinal mistake of having a course on a Friday afternoon, and uh, where, where none of us ever went to class on Friday afternoon, we were in the pub drinking, drinking beer as, as first year students do. So I, uh, about week eight, I realized I hadn't been to the class, so I better drop it before it appears as a fail. And then um, from there, I, when I finished university, I had this dangling credit. So I ended up going to the University of Dijon. Uh, they had a French program that um, my university uh, said it would be fine. And if I passed it for 70%, um, I'd get my credit and get my degree. And I very quickly realized that um, passing was not going to be a problem. Um, it was very, very much a beginning class. And so I felt I had to do something else. I'd met a lovely Dutch girl. Life was good. I was 21. Uh, and I thought, well, I better do something. I can't go to class and be bored to tears. And the university offered a sommelier program, and, um, and I took that. And that got me, that, that pricked my veins. And I, uh, it was very Burgundy-focused, struggling Pinot, which is what we do today. Um, and, uh, I was also very lucky, um, I, before I went to, to the University of Dijon, um, I was, um, four seasons I'd interviewed with them and they said, get as much experience as you possibly can. Um, and, uh, so I, um, I got a job in the Star restaurant tonight. And with that, um, the somebody of my program and the somebody of the school put two and two together. So I got these beautiful private tastings every night of all these great burgundies that were, you know, I think I drank some of the best wines in my life then, you know, and I wish, I wish I could drink them now because I certainly didn't appreciate them to the extent I did. So, you know, kind of long story short, that's what got me into it. Um, and, um, and then I was very lucky to work for Four Seasons and they were an amazing company. And, um, you know, I think the harder you work, the luckier you get. And I had a couple of really great lucky breaks with them. Um, and then I turned 30, and it was like I really felt at that point I was a critic, but I'd never made the wine. And I always felt weird about that. You know, I felt that you know you got all these great winemakers visiting you, and and you know you're critiquing their wines, um, but you've actually never really been in their shoes. 
So um, I took a year off and I went and traveled. I did a vintage in Oregon for this great producer. And then uh, uh, after that, I went to South Africa, uh, worked for a small wine called Richard Finlayson um, in a really brand new up and coming uh, region. And end of the vintage, they offered me a full time job. So with that, um, the challenge was set. And uh, was I going to go back to Four Seasons or back to the corporate world, or was I going to follow winemaking? And I chose to follow the winemaking route. Yeah, that's amazing. That's an incredible story. Yeah, it was um, uh, a big change. You know, I think yeah. it was uh, very challenging in the sense that um, you know my friends were all getting married, they were buying houses, and here at thirty, I decided to bolt and literally go and apprentice to the very best. So I, I ended up spending um, six years working between Southern Hemisphere and Northern Hemisphere and uh, basically just earning enough money to get to the next vintage. But one of the things I did is and when, I, when I joined Four Seasons, my, my dad gave me some really great advice. Um, he said, if you're going to go to the hotel business or whatever business you decide to go to, make sure you only work for the best. Um, so in my in my apprenticing, I was lucky enough to get a good break on my first two apprenticeships, and once you sort of worked for a couple of good guys, then you know you, you're swimming in the same um, in the same pond, yeah. and they pass you along, and and with that, um, it makes a makes a big difference. Okay. I'm curious because you're talking about these great wine regions and getting started in Burgundy, and you know someone might say, how did you? Decided to come to Ontario or Prince Edward County of all places. Well, you know, it was, uh, in, in my travels, I was looking for um, clay and limestone because clay and limestone is the ultimate sort of elixir uh, for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And, you know, I worked in New Zealand, I worked in Burgundy, I worked in California, South Africa, and I, in, I just wasn't finding it. And I found some in New Zealand. But the... Um, the uh, the problem in New Zealand is it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, and when you're in the middle of nowhere, um, you need to travel. And you go look at New Zealand. New Zealand's got know, 400 wineries today uh, and a population at its fullest when every tourist in the world is there in high season of maybe 3 million people. So, you know, you got there's a very small local market, so you have to spend your life in airplanes. And I thought, that's the last thing I want to do is spend my life in airplanes. Plus, you know, New Zealand is a, it's so gorgeous. And I really love my time there. But you know, it's just far. And the sites that I found in New Zealand were in the middle of nowhere in New Zealand. So living in the middle of nowhere, nowhere didn't really um, entice me very much. So, um, so coming back to your question is I'd looked all over the world. And uh, I was home one Christmas, and I think my parents were kind of nervous what I was doing, and you know, where, you know, what, what the hell, are you, what the hell is happening, and with you, and and they kind of blinded me with a couple Chardonnays from Niagara, and I tasted a lot of Chardonnays from Niagara in the past, and, and you know, I'd seen the evolution, and being a good Canadian, you could never think you could actually do well here, you know? <laughs> I wouldn't even think that there's clay and limestone here. And sure enough, I tasted the show and said, this is really good. And then I went down to Niagara and I had a good look at the sites that came from. I looked at the soils and that 
really excited me. And then uh, someone said, you should go to this place called Prince Edward County. And I was like, I thought I was getting another airplane, you know, off to Anakin Gables, PEI, you know, because no one knew the county in those days. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, this was a really very quiet community. And uh, so I drove up here and I took one look at the soils and I said, wow, this is magic. Um, but, you know, in those days, we didn't know very much. Like, it was... No one had really grown anything. We didn't really know how we could protect our minds. We didn't know very much, you know? Um, so with that, um, we had to be, you know, it was a big risk coming here. It was a huge risk coming here. Um, and uh, I was, you know, I, I, I chose here as opposed to Niagara because I could always buy good Niagara fruit. I, if I was down there, there would be no county fruit um, to grow because this is such a young industry. So um, I uh, rolled the dice, found some, I found a great piece here, um, and uh, I I had a. It was interesting in finding this piece and another piece of land. Is people forget that um, winemaking is farming. And this is the most important thing. It is agricultural. And why certain sites are better than other sites is the slopes, the temperatures, the drainage, basic farming stuff. So I went and I sort of isolated this hilly area. I thought, well, microclimates are going to be very important being close to the lake, moderating effects, all basic frost protection, that sort of stuff. And maybe, like, given we were close, would protect us from some of the cold in the winter. It doesn't really because the winds come from the north. Um, and I went to a local farmer, and I swear you, on a good day from where the wineries say you could hit his house with, you know, maybe three golf golf shots. When Tiger Woods used to play golf, you know, <laughs> and uh, I knocked on his door, and I had a bottle of wine in my hand, and he went. Uh, I said, I, I'm thinking about I've given you a name. You you farmed here your whole life, and your dad farmed here, and uh, and I said I'm thinking about planting some grapes. And he says, I know nothing about them grape things. And he. <laughs> He looked at the bottle and said, come on in, son. And, and I said, you know, listen, this great, great growing this farm. Apparently you farmed every piece of land in this area. And he said, yep. And um, with that, he gave me some really great advice. And this, the, the present side of where the winery is, um, he thought was a very good piece. Um, you know, it's a 51-acre it's, it's a piece, but only about 20 perfect arable. But that's fine. Land in those days was inexpensive. And, you know, to, the truth is just having that beautiful area down at the bottom and everything, it, it kind of fits nicely. So, and then he recommended there was a piece at the end of the road, um, and he said, um, that might be for sale. So we looked at that, and um, I was really glad. In those days, land was a lot less expensive than it was today. So uh, with that, I bought these two pieces of land, and now I'm committed. <laughs> so I also looked at it, I said, you know, Toronto's north is getting expensive. It's beautiful here. At some point, land was going to appreciate. So it wasn't going to be a complete loss, but I'd sort of I'd thrown my eggs into the basket here, and, and, and uh, boy, I'm happy I did it. Did your training prepare you to really start your own, or was it a lot of learning as you, as you went? Oh, I, I think you always learn as you go, right? Um, I certainly, all the traveling, um, I think, had a huge, huge part. Um, I would also say... Um, the sort of management training of people um, uh, I, I received at the Four Seasons, I think, 
helped me tremendously. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I've learned you've got to work out where your weaknesses are and where your strengths are. And um, with that, um, you know, I, I, finding a good viticulturist like Mark, uh, who's just walked by over here. <laughs> you can't see it, but, uh, yeah. Um, you know, you gotta, you know, you, he's grown up here and he understands the land and he's a farmer. And so was it a learning curve for sure. Like and here, it was like so hard because, you know, unlike Niagara, which has been established for a long time, we didn't have any of that infrastructure. But the one good thing is this has always been a farming community. So, you know, very quickly you find out who the local welder is. You can fix everything. Um, and particularly with these soils being very rocky and very hard, um, you know, it's, uh, um, you got to have good welding skills if you're going to live in this county. How would you describe, because obviously you can make great wines, but if, if the region might not be well established, is that not an added struggle on top of that? How would you describe? So I think yes and no. I think, you know, like, so I looked at Niagara, and there's, there's, there's one main reason why I didn't settle in Niagara is, is that I'd never be able to get county grapes. Um, another reason why I didn't settle in Niagara, I would have been the 158th winery. Whereas here, I would be in the first six or eight or ten. And so I thought, you know, maybe being a big fish in a little pond is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other benefit is, is you know, in new regions, um, you know, we, th- this place, new regions gives journalists new stories to write about. And, um, you know, the press and our industry is, is very important. PR is very important. And I thought, you know, if we can do something very special here, um, it will, it will, it will ignite the press, and, and they've been writing about Niagara for years. And Niagara, like I source a lot of my food from Niagara, is amazing. And, and however, as a region, um, you know, this being new and budding, and, and some exciting wines coming out of it, it really, you know, gave gave the gave the press and and the PR machines um, something to do. So, um, and then I think the other big thing I looked at this is is that. Um, we're very close to a lot of people. Um, you know, we are four hours from Montreal, three hours from Ottawa, and two hours from Toronto. And, you know, if this land and everything, and everything was equal, and it was in the middle of Saskatchewan, even today, knowing what we've done, likely wouldn't have to do it because you know, your door traffic would not be there. And that's, uh, you know, this is an expensive game. game, And the door traffic is where your best margins are. So was there a, a turning point for your winery? Because you, it, it's it, just looking outside and looking at the people that you attract and even the reviews that your wine gets and the attention that it gets, um, was there like one specific thing that you can pinpoint as to where you guys just blew up? Or Yeah, I think, you know, there's always that, that in any business is a straw that either broke the camel's back mm-hmm. or propelled it to, to a different height. Um, I'd say 2010 was a, a really, um, was a tipping, uh, tipping point for us. Um, in 2000, and my 2008 County Chardonnay, I felt was brilliant. And uh, in 2009, I went to the VPOA tasting panel and it went through six sets of tastes and failed. And eventually, it went to an appeals panel, and it barely passed. However, I felt this was the most exciting Chardonnay I'd ever made. 
Um, and it was very challenging because without that decoy sticker, I couldn't uh, sell it, or you had to sell it with a lot less. The, the financial implications were significant. And uh, particularly, we didn't have a lot of door traffic in those days, so anything that sort of got sold and was put on the Elsevier shelves, the restaurants had lost a huge margin on it because of all the decoy. So, anyhow, yeah, I had stuck to my guns because I felt the wine was, was, was very special. And in 2010, Matt Kramer from the Wine Spectator came and spent a day here, and he tasted that wine, and uh, Matt went silent for about 10 minutes. And Matt Kramer, if you've ever listened to him or watched him, he's a very brilliant guy. So when he goes silent, it's either really good <laughs> or really bad. <laughs> and, um, and he looked up and he said, Norman, this is possibly the greatest New World Chardonnay I've ever tasted in my life. And what really made me excited about it, he says, um, are you familiar with a producer called Costa Rica? And I said, I, I am very familiar um, for a number of reasons. First of all, I, ca I can't afford $300 a bottle. <laughs> uh, but his, I've tasted his wines when it was four seasons. I've tasted a lot of it. And, and obviously, um, from time to time, we've tasted some amazing stuff. And... Um, I've tasted his stuff, so his stuff is so distinctive. So I, it triggered, and I said, this is the wine. It, to me, it's the greatest Burgundy, uh, and they make the greatest Mercedes. And when we dug the hole for the barrel chamber, and the earth was coming up in 2003, and I smelled that earth, it smelled like Costa Rica Chardonnay. I said, if I can make Chardonnay like this, like Costa Rica, and sure enough, seven years later, Matt Kramer's going, this tastes like Costa Rica. So that really, I think, was the first big jump. Um, and it sort of coincided with an amazing review from Jancis Robinson. And that sort of one-two validation. And there were different vintages and different wines that I made. So all of a sudden, from two of the top journalists in the world, um, we've got validation. And not only on one single wine, but on a you know, five or seven of them. And I think that was that sort of turning point. And then the other big turning point was um, about eight years ago, um, I, I stayed in really good contact with um, the corporate food and beverage director from Four Seasons. He had retired, um, and I called him up, and I said, listen, Alphonse, um, We'd like to get a day, like to have a day away from the house. <laughs> I know you used to have a hundred eighty of them a year on planes all over the world, but you'd like to come up to the farm and and uh, and uh, spend the day and tell me what you think. He says, "Well, Norman, I know nothing about wineries." I said, "Well, Alphonse, you put two, three Michelin star restaurants into one hotel in Hong Kong. You know, you're gonna you're gonna be able to give me something." Yeah. All right, all right. So he comes up and spends the day. And uh end of the day, he said, I'm going to do tell you three things. The first thing you don't have the money to do, and you don't need it now, but soon you're going to need to have part of your budget with someone to cut the grass and make this place look rustic, but taken care of. Right now, you're young and boutique, and people don't see that. They actually want what you have now, but I'm telling you, in two years, you're going to have to put it. So I said, great. The second thing he said that, you know, upstairs we were just selling wine, and he said, you really should sell other merchandise. He said, you know, 
um, your captive audience, you're often going to have a couple. She loves wine. He doesn't. She spends $500. He feels that he needs to spend $500. So give them the opportunity. Put high-class, beautiful, boutique, handcrafted stuff that fits with your brand. We did that. Now that retail space pays for two salaries. And the third thing he says, he was German, and he was like, he was like hard for it. Goes, and this is not so PG. You can edit it. He goes, <laughs> oh, no, no, he goes, yeah. he goes, Norman, you are fucking stupid not doing food. It's like, <laughs> what do you mean, Alphonse? I ran away from food to make wine. He said, you were really good with food, and you're really good. He said, you need to do something to make this place more memorable than just a great tasting and tasting one. You want, you need to do food, you need to get people to sit down and smell and see the great energy this place has. And that's when we did the pizza. And um, the, the oven has been a big turning point in, I think, in our brand in the sense that people now actually have a relationship with our wine because they actually can sit, they can drink it, they see all these young, energetic people working here. And I tell you, people in their 50s and 60s and even in their 40s love to see 20-year-olds work. They just feel good. They feel amazing. And so um, so I'd say the the oven and, and, and then Matt Kramer, Jancis Robinson, two very big turning points in what we do. Um, and the oven was a – it was a – I had to think hard what I was going to do because you only open four months. Um, you know the talent pool in the in the in the food world here is not particularly high. Um, I was worried about um, fluctuations in 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 customers. You know, and I thought, and then it was the rise of the Phoenix when Libretto just started to come on board, and everyone got excited about pizza Libretto, and it was not only Tironi's, now it was Libretto, and then I thought, bingo, we'll do pizzas, and we'll do them really well, and. We actually had Libretto and Cerrone um, help uh, uh, get us going. Um, first year, Daniel Usher set everything up, and he had worked at Cerrone and Libretto, and he brought out Maccioni, and he brought out Rocco from, um, uh, from, from Libretto and helped train. So we started out with the pizzas perfectly, and um, I think that's had a, a huge impact on what we're doing. So uh, we heard earlier today from one of the, the other winemakers in – uh, Prince Edward County, the comparison of uh, wine is food. Uh, do, do you agree with that statement? Or Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would. I think it is. I think, you know, um, wine, uh, very similar to food, um, uh, shows its provenance. Uh, pro pro provenance. Um, uh, you know, when you taste great wine, um, if you taste well, you can taste where it came from. Uh, the same thing with, with great food, you know, great ingredients. You, can, you know, it's it's a little harder with the ingredients, but, you know, when we taste county tomatoes, they taste different than Leamington tomatoes because of the problems. But, yeah, I think wine also in wine is food is, is that um, food nourishes the soul. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, 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 and wine certainly does. And when you put it right next to a fire, like a pizza oven, like... That's the trifecta. 
food, wine, and you have a hearth. Everyone loves the hearth. That's awesome. And I was curious, like, can you describe how you maybe grew to appreciate that sort of, get, you know, get that sort of appreciation? Because I know as a lot of young people starting out, you might not be able to appreciate that right away. Can you describe maybe that progression for you and what you learned? Yeah, I, you know, I was lucky I worked with good people and great places. But, you know, I think um, the younger generation today, it's really exciting. Um, I think through social media, uh, they have access to a lot more information. You know, I, I think wine has become um, a lot more accessible or um, acceptable to drink. Like, I remember my parents and, you know, they had wine on special occasions and then with beer and hard liquor. That, those days are gone. You know, um, I think that, um, you know, television, Food Network, all this um, has really helped our wine industry because there's a glass on the table. And I think, you know, food and wine, you know, great food and great wine work really well together. Also, wine makes people happy. And people are happy, food tastes better. Uh, and there's sort of full circle. And then I think, there's also a really, you know, ex exciting where, you know, there's this big movement uh, towards eating local and drinking local. And, and, you know, my parents' generation, it was pretty hard to convince them to drink Canadian wine. Like, my dad's group of friends, you know, it took the Jancis Robinson and the Mac Kramer reviews, not once, like twice or three times before they were like, kind of give me a chance, right? Um, however, um, young kids that come here in their, in their twenties, they come with unscathed minds. They come with, um, a desire to eat local. Um, they don't have any preconceived ideas. Like the Canadian wines 35 years ago, 40 years ago, which helped. Um, and that, so the young kids, you know, don't have any preconceived ideas of, 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 of bad wines and. Uh, from uh, coming from here, and also they want to support local, which I think is fantastic. But it's it's a hard thing to change. That you know, everyone talks. I want to eat local. I want to drink local. Um, it's lip service is strong, and we got to keep pushing. And I know how hard it is because I caught myself the other day. Um, I always buy. I don't eat a lot of cheese, but whenever I buy cheese, I always buy like my favorites. Like when I was in Europe, and then I was at Joby. And I, David McMillan's one of my best mates. And I looked at the cheese board, and it was Marco and Dave, and I said, this is amazing. Can you tell me about the cheeses? And the first thing they said, they're all Canadian. And I went, holy shit. Joe Beef <laughs> can put together a cheese board of, and they, you know, David just loves burgundy. And uh, so then I looked at myself, and I said, you know, I'm like the local Vorian, and I'm not eating great Canadian cheeses. And I think, um, you know, I think it's sometimes for people uh, with wine, they catch themselves as well. But I, I feel so strongly about how great this part of the world is. Like, this is, we, we have some of the greatest, greatest terroirs in the new world. And... You know, I met with Angela Gaia and, uh, and uh, Matt Kramer and, uh, in, in October, and they were, we came here and we had a big tasting and lunch. And Matt Kramer said, I, it, and I quote him, I believe some of the greatest terroirs in the world are just being discovered now. 
you know, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, they were discovered a long time ago. Now we're starting, uh, the borders opening up, uh, eyes are opening, and, uh, you know, I think some of the great terroirs, and I think Prince Edward County is the, um, is the greatest, one of the greatest places in the world to make wine. And I will say the same thing for Niagara. So, I, going back, I, you know, I, I think some of the greatest new world wines are going to be made in the future. Uh, greatest wines in the world are yet to be made. And I think certainly out of Niagara or Prince Edward County, uh, because of the amazing soils and the coupon that we have, um, we will, um, we'll, we'll do it here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you said some of the best uh, terroirs are being discovered now. Um, so going maybe outside of Ontario, outside of Canada, where do you think the other like territories that are just being discovered, like the hidden gems, I guess, that people don't really know about yet, where do you think those are? Um, you know, I think um, certainly uh, Nova Scotia mm-hmm. um, have been doing, uh, they've been making wines for quite a long time. Um, however, um, Benjamin Bridge has been in there for about 10 years, and they came with a different model, and I think some of the sparkling wines I've tasted from there are absolutely, like, mind-blowingly good. Um, so, I, and, and, you know, that's, it's there, you know, the, the, the great wines, I think, are always made on the edge, like, places where you can just ripen things. So, mm-hmm. you got to look at why Champagne is Champagne, is they can just ripen it with sparkling the still wines, even from Barèche, like the bottle in the corner there, you know the Coteau Champenoise, they're hard work. They still, so you know I think Nova Scotia I think has a has a really really interesting opportunity. Um, I think we're getting about you know elsewhere. I think the Swaziland in South Africa has been very exciting. Mm-hmm. You know they've that was an area that was abandoned. Uh, lots of old vines. Um, uh, so I, I think they're doing some really, really amazing things. Um, you know, New Zealand, I think is, you know, New Zealand's got a, you know, some amazing terroirs, but also cracker, very, very strong winemakers. Um, I think we're going to see some areas like in Chile and Argentina at high altitude, uh, cooler, a lot cooler up there. Um, and I think that's where the wine world is going. It's going... The, the 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 world's palate is progressing, uh, and uh, you know how I say it's like my parents' generation, they had wines on special occasions. Now they drink it every day. Now we've got more people having a glass of wine with dinner, and a younger generation. Um, so we've you know we've we've got a, we've got a good we've got a good core group to feed. And I am, I'm very excited about that. I would say that culture is kind of shifting towards that here, especially in Canada. Yeah, and I think Canadians, thank God, are finally figuring out that we make some of the greatest ones. Yeah. You know, um, it takes, I mean, I've done five trips to London in six years to taste with journalists. And now when the top journalists are writing great things about Canadian wines and about ourselves, um, all of a sudden we got believers. And I think also, you know, going back to that, that change in the palate, everyone's moving towards that more acidic, fresher, more vibrant terroir style. And this is what we have. In the age of global warming and everything, we're right next to Lake Ontario. Not much is happening here. 
That's big blue out there, and she <laughs> is cool. So, um, yeah, I'm I, I, I'm very bullish on on the way all this is going. Absolutely. So you think that the climate will have kind of an impact on you going forward? You know, I think we have to look at it. I think we have to look at it seriously. I think this is where you know something like Nova Scotia or continental climates are going to do so well because. You know, it takes a lot for the ocean to rise itself by a number of degrees that will have an effect on on on, on the land next to it, as is Lake Ontario. Um, I think we're we're in a very really really great place here. Um, I had uh, one of these greatest winemakers here in October, and I was trying to explain to him that the lake has this big effect, and he goes, "Oh well, you know, I'm not sure," and you know, and and. Uh, and you know he's thinking about Lake Como in the middle of Italy, which is, you know, it's a, it's it's soupy warm, you know, um, uh, uh, in the, in the summers because it's not it's not particularly deep, even though it does get a lot of runoff from the Alps. Um, so when I took him to see the lake, and he saw the tide, just the tidal movement is alone, uh, because all the when I went to the lake here, the the, the tide was out and. You know, there's a limestone shelf of 20 meters, and the window's up, and he looked at me, and he goes, now I understand. You know, it's, a, it's like a big ocean. So that's where I think these, I think going forward, these big continental, the, the wines that are on the edge that are close to large bodies of water of the oceans um, are going to be, uh, have a very strong position in, in the future. Did you have uh, any other topics that you feel very strongly about that you want to share? Yeah, I... Or? I, yeah, I think one of the things that we try to do here is um, we try and work as naturally as possible. Mm -hmm. um, in this day and age in, of, of making wine, um, it's become very um, chemistry, um, I would say chemistry, but very scientifically made. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a place for those wines. Um, I, you know, my, my lovely ex-wife, and I'm not kidding, she's amazing. I was at her house the other day, and she was having a very conservative brand of wine. I said, "Just you know, do you like that?" She goes, "I love it because it tastes the same all the time." And so, you know, there's a part of the world which, you know, consistency. You know, why Santa Margarita Pinot Why this? Is it like it's made no matter what the weather is? They kind of get a taste in the same every year. So for us, I don't. I, I, I don't subscribe to that. Um, we've chosen amazing soils to express the vineyards, and if we are if we are using uh, commercial yeasts and we're using uh, fermenter and we're only fermenting clean juice and we settle, um, then we are going to make wines like the rest of the world. And I, it's hard to make wines natural, um, but you know I'm a, I'm a firm believer in indigenous yeast, even down to culturing a yeast from each field. So the Chardonnay in that field will have a different yeast floor than the Chardonnay in that field. So when a lot of people say, oh, we use indigenous yeast, they harvest that one first, that one gets going, they bucket some into this one's tank, and that gets going, and that's natural yeast. And we actually take it a step further to the point where um, we actually culture a yeast from each field each year to ferment those wines. And I'm very strongly on that. And then the other, I think, big thing I'm very strong on is, is that we have um, is we ferment with what I call dirty juice. And dirty juice is this, a lot of the solids, uh, a lot of the lees. Uh, it's easier 
to make clean juice because you get nice clean flavors, but then I think you lose a whole lot of elements on the palate and and certainly the wine tastes less of the place when, when you're fermenting perfect clean juice as opposed to juice that has lots of solids in it. How do you see yourself growing in the future? What's, what's the path forward for you? You know, I think the key for us is, like any business, is hiring good people. Um, people ask me, you know, have you grown? The quality must have dropped. I said, you know, actually as we've grown, the quality's gone up because now I can hire people to wash my tanks. In the middle of vintage, if I'm spending half my days inside of tanks, I can't see what's happening on the outside. Um, so I think as long as we continue a culture of greatness, um, uh, we'll, tend to, we'll tend to attract great people. And, uh, and then we'll see. We could be another five, could be another 10,000 cases. We did a big jump last year. It was almost 20,000 cases last year. Um, so... Anyhow, we'll, we'll see. Um, but I think, you know, I, I will, I, I want to keep doing, I love doing what I do. And I'm, you know, I couldn't be more excited. But, you know, I think what's important is, is that, um, you know, end of the day, that, you know, your work fills your soul. And uh, I don't mind, as long, if we're growing and my soul is being filled, I'm happy. Um, and also, I think it's important to, to grow uh, as long as you can raise the quality. Because you have an opportunity to teach so many more people, um, and uh, you know, and employ people, and and all that. Like you know, every so many cases, that takes another man body, and uh, so you know, as you've seen, we've got lots of young kids running around this place. Um, I like to keep as many young kids employed as possible. Smart, yeah, yeah. smart. It makes it uh, it makes it a little more welcoming for people my and Brandon's age to see someone who's also like 23, 24 serving us at like your Chardonnay, and then it just makes it like so much easier to embrace the, like your passion and the passion of your employees too. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah that's incredible. Nora, thank you for very much for taking oh, my pleasure. So Fantastic. Hey guys, Tyler here again. Just wanted to thank you for listening to this wonderful podcast and thanks to Norm for hosting us for such an incredible day at his winery. Uh, If you haven't already, please go and visit his winery. It is incredible and a must visit if you're ever in Prince Edward County. Also, please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Your support means the world to us. Thanks, guys.